imagine going to the doctor and you've got a fucking arrow through your leg and you're telling doctor, doctor, I got a fucking arrow on my leg. Do something about it. It's like, oh, obviously there's something wrong with your arm. I'm going to mess with that for a little bit. No, I've got a fucking arrow on my leg. Wow, you, you know, you got something growing on your head. Let me take a look at that. I've got a motherfucking arrow in my motherfucking leg. Do something about it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 143 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. There's a number of different things I want us to go to to get into. This is going to be a little bit of a, a, a TMK classic right now. There's some some old friends we need to check up on um, who we haven't talked about in a while. And then there's a, a, a larger topic I want us to do a, a deep dive into for this episode. So, you know, we're going to check up at the top of the show, check up on our old friends at the FTC, our old friends at Uber, um, or I should say our old enemies at Uber, uh, you know, see what's going on with them. And then um, after, after we get done with that, that kind of front matter, we're going to do a deeper dive into buy now, pay later. Uh, you know, this is something we've mentioned before on previous episodes, but nothing we've ever done a, a real focused analysis and discussion of, uh, and it's way overdue, not just with TMK, but also just like, the general, uh, you know, critical analyses of these companies is, 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 uh, woefully lacking in a way that's surprising to me. So we're going to get into like what they are, how they work, who's using them, uh, you know, the, the wheeling and dealing happening and, and their kind of, you know, their consequences, both big and small. But before we get to that, FTC, Federal Trade Commission just announced uh, a, a new action that they were, ta- that they're taking against um, a company formerly known as Weight Watchers. Uh, now, you know, it's, it's WW International and they're targeting its Kerbo app, uh, which, you know, they're, uh, uh, going after Weight Watchers and this Kerbo app for illegally collecting sensitive health data about kids. Um, so I saw this on, uh, you know, I saw Lena Khan tweeting about, about this new action they're taking. I was looking into it. I mean, the details are horrendous. Um, and, and, you know, huge, you know, huge props to FTC for, for actually doing something about it. But, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, WW International or Weight Watchers, 
um, marketed this weight loss app, Kerbo, for use by children as young as eight years old and then collected their personal information without parental consent. So, I mean, that's, that's already just, just awful. Awful. Sh- yeah. I mean, one, another example of a technology that shouldn't exist. There should not uh-huh. be a weight loss app that's, car- that's targeting, you know, kids as young as eight years old, uh, you know, or, and, and I think their, their, their explicit like marketing is for like teenagers, right? Like, uh, come on, man. Like, uh-huh. it, it's, it's awful. It's horrendous. But on top of that, they ran afoul in just the most explicit way of COPPA or Children's Online Privacy Protection Act uh, rules that, you know, that require websites, apps, you know, online services that are child directed or knowingly collect personal information from children to notify parents and get parental consent before collecting. They just didn't do that. They were just collecting all kinds of sensitive information about kids, ages, weights, birth dates, addresses, all that stuff. Not clear as to what they were trying to do with that other than, you know, feed it into their algorithm to do, I don't know, like more predictive um, cert products, you know, more targeting, you know, finer grain targeting, um, all of that, you know, feeding it into this Kerbo app that, you know, I guess is supposed to give you like tailored, uh, you know, dietary and weight loss uh, recommendation and stuff. But just, I mean, just, just awful shit. And it, it, it's great that the FTC is targeting that. I think it is good that they're targeting it. I really do wish we could know what the fuck they were thinking when they did this. This is such a blatant violation that they said that, you know, I think it was such a clear violation, right? The commission voted and they said, let's refer it to a civil penalty complaint in the press release. And they, the complaint is to the DOJ. The DOJ vote was 5-0. You know, um, so everyone, even the Republicans agreed this was egregious. Then the DOJ filed a complaint. It's in the U.S. District Court and the court has already proved it um, or proved it on March 3rd. So they're going to get the shit sued out of them uh, likely. And hopefully maybe that will be a good financial deterrent. But I think also it's really interesting that like, you know, the FTC is building from the looks of it, like precedent and cases for. Um, separating corporations from their algorithms mm-hmm. instead of just, you know, playing whack-a-mole and, 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 and hitting them, you know, square in the head or trying to whenever they make one this or that um, violation of rules, right? I think that's, that's for me, like the exciting thing we've talked about and in our FTC episodes, talked about like, you know, what we think are limitations of reforms and what are re- like real reforms that are not just, you know, meaningless or piecemeal. And I think like building a case or building within the system, a precedent for seizing algorithms and, and maybe ending a company's business model. That's a, that's a real reform. That's a reform you can get behind that promises to change the political economy of uh, a lot of corporations, startups, firms in the tech sector that rely on harvesting data. Yeah, I, I want to just quote really quick from Lena Khan uh, in the, the press release on this, where she says, you know, our order, you know, FTC's order against Weight Watchers and Kerbo requires them to delete their ill-gotten data, pay a penalty for their law breaking, and destroy any algorithms derived from that data. 
that is major. That's huge. That's a that that's that's called Luddism as policy, folks. Uh, and and that's that you know that's something we've never really seen before, where it's not just pay a fine, you know, pay a penalty, delete the data, but also delete any products, any algorithms, models, whatever that you've created from that data also has to be deleted, also has to be destroyed. Uh, you know, we, we don't tend to see that, right? Like uh, a lot of these companies, you know, tech companies, financial companies, they treat these civil penalty fines as a cost of doing business. You know, they say, ah, okay, you know, Wall Street's going to say, all right, you know, the SEC is going to, you know, make us pay a fine for this, whatever. You know, we just budget that into our, our, you know, our annual cost of doing business. Tech companies, you know, FTC, uh, you know, oh, they're just going to make us pay a fine. Oh, it sucks. But, you know, ultimately it's like a drop in the bucket for our revenue. And at the end right. of the day, just cost of doing business. And, but we still got the products, right? Um, but no, now FTC is targeting those products which is which is major the whole thing with weight watchers like storing children's information just screams of like uh customer retention you know like mm. weight watchers is an antiquated it's outdated there's so many other alternatives to like tracking your calories you know with like calorie tracking apps and things like that and i feel like that was like a move for them to try to stay relevant in an ever-growing which is you know to me a little disgusting world of like diet tracking and things like that. I get it. It works for some people, but I also like changing times more and more people are moving away from something like that. So it, it makes sense that they're going to want to try to like hook a whole nother generation of people on their product. Someone made a calculated risk and they got fucking caught. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Customer retention is exactly right. Um, here, you know, they want to, they want to latch on to that whole life, that whole consumer life cycle, you know, and part of that is building these models, building, you know, algorithms or whatever that are designed to, you know, be hyper personalized and keep you, keep you on the hook, keep you coming back. I want to quote as well from, um, the FTC's chief technologist, Erie Meyer mentioned that this kind of corporate restructuring and stronger enforcement, uh, you know, is specifically targeting companies that sacrifice that quote sacrifice security and service of speed um and also uh Erie Meyer also uh, mentioned you know quote we're going to make sure that data abusers face consequences for their wrongdoing um she slammed fixes that make quote a disclosure longer or one time fine bigger um and suggested the FTC needed to take on entire business models so that's exactly what you were getting at too Ed where this is this is focusing the business model it's not like saying you need to make your your terms of service agreement even longer you know nobody reads that shit so add a couple hundred pages to it um you know so you cover all your disclosures it's not saying you know we're gonna make this fine bigger it's saying we're gonna target the structure the, the business model itself we're saying you cannot be allowed to do this at any cost that you know it's just not you know, it's got to be outright banned, abolished, destroyed. Everybody's got to walk through the motions. You know, you can't, you can't uh, get through life nowadays without giving a little bit of information about yourself away. It's like the expectation of it being like they want more and more of it as like a price for doing business. And mm -hmm. my hope is to see that the FTC like literally takes that hammer out and says, no, no more of this and everything you have, like you said before, destroy it. That's 
something that should have been done and needs to be done from the get-go. We'll teach you to burn your money, essentially. You know, all your ill-gotten gains I'm going to put in one big cask and we're going to set it on fire. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it really does. It, it is targeting as well that like, you know, by just trying to make the fines bigger, all you're doing is, you know, uh, that that's just rolled into like, you know, the, the venture capital that's subsidizing all these companies yeah. or the or the pro or the 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 loss making that these companies are already built on it's like what do they care you know but but instead and this isn't the first time they've done this uh the ftc has caught, made uh, you know uh forced a company to destroy any models or algorithms uh or products derived from ill-gotten data as they call it um this happened last year as well and i think it is you know it's setting that precedent so and and so last so you know we got this latest action which is against weight watchers and it's targeting you know the fact that they were collecting data uh illegally uh, about children so sensitive uh data from underage users last year there was a company FTC also took order against and did the same thing um, called Ever, which is a photo storage app that as a, a 2019 investigation by NBC News revealed that Ever had, quote, quietly siphoned billions of its users' photos to train facial recognition algorithms. Pictures of people's friends and families, which they had thought were private, were in fact being used to train algorithms that Ever then sold to law enforcement and the U.S. military. Last year, uh, in 2021, uh, FTC also made an example out of the parent company Ever Album, which had since rebranded to Paravision. Uh, and, and in a decision from last year, um, uh, FTC required Paravision to re delete all the photos it had secretly taken from users. All right, so destroy all the ill-gotten data, but also destroy any algorithms it had built using that data. So all those facial recognition uh, products that they were selling to law enforcement, to uh, uh, U.S. military, they had to delete all that. They had to flush all that down the, the drain. And this is I mean, this is massive. This is huge. Uh, again, you know, targeting the business model um, wow. of these companies that are, you know, deceptively using data, um, sensitive data, personal data, private data to then create products from that data. I mean, th this is, it's, it's not only an amazing precedent in terms of just like actually sharpening the acts of enforcement, something that we haven't seen happen in a long time, especially, you know, during the Trump years, uh, a lot of these regulatory agencies were even more defanged. So like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, um, FTC, you know, these companies or these uh, regulatory agencies, which were already under-resourced, uh, you know, uh, don't, you know, they, they were, they were dull, um, in their enforcement capabilities, which is getting worse and worse. But now all of a sudden we start, we see them bringing out the hammer, sharpening the axes under Lena Khan's leadership and, and doing what we, what needs to be done, doing what, you know, we'd be doing if we were in that role, <laughs> you know, and mm -hmm. it, it's, it's great. You love to see it. You love to see it. And, you know, again, it, it really is about them saying, um, we're not just doing slaps on the wrist anymore. We're not just doing that whack-a-mole. Um, we are trying to rip out the, the model from, from its roots.
You know, I think that protocol piece kind of highlighting comments from the chief technologist, Eric Meyer, Ari Meyer, and as well as comments made by um, Rebecca Kelly Slaughter, who's um, another uh, FTC commissioner on the Democratic side. I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is positive stuff to think of. Like, I think that the arrival of Khan, right, and I think the shift in terms of staff, and the agency, there's been a lot of reports been made of trying to ins- ins- or trying to insist that these like shufflings or a crisis of confidence. But I think like if we're looking at what's been happening, it's a lot more aggressive action, right? A lot more and a lot more thoughtful thinking along the lines of the thought that we've outlined before about okay, like how do we make qual- like serious structural changes to corporations and the economy to deter certain types of behavior because clearly fines are not working and fines are a key part of uh, the of the you know neoliberal vision of antitrust being that like you know prices are good monopolies can be good monopsonies can be good and that you re- and that abuses are hard to prove um, but that the best way to deter or hurt them you know, is with, you know, a light touch. You don't want to go around restructuring and planning the markets. But, you know, clearly, you know, you have to do that. You have to step in there. And I think, you know, right now, it'll be on the pretense of, or on the premise of, oh, these these companies have violated pre-existing rules. Oh, these companies have gotten data illegally. Oh, these companies have uh, undermined security and privacy, right? And these are good principles to consider and think about and steps to build the precedent on. But I do hope also that there becomes like a sort of moral imperative here, right? Where we start thinking about what types of business models should be allowed to exist and not allowed to exist. We're not there yet, I don't think. Um, but I do think privacy concerns, surveillance advertising, data harvesting of children are really great steps where you can build the precedent, you can build consensus on banning and restructuring and modifying corporate behavior at the market level by restructuring these things with laws, right? Or um, straight up seizure and destruction of algorithms. And then also maybe make the larger case that like, you know, these are things that are incentivized. They're not incidental. They're not accidental. And so maybe we need to put even stricter boundaries on what corporations are allowed to do. Yeah, and this is exactly how precedence is made. Legal precedence, regulatory precedence is through test cases. You know, you, you, you gotta find the case that is exemplary of the, um, of the, the, the judgment, but also one that makes the, uh, the judgment so clear as to be, you know, um, uh, just irrefutable. So this is, I think this is why we also are seeing these test cases against, uh, you know, a company like Ever Album, um, or Paravision as it was rebranded, you know, a company that, is not a major player, but it's big enough. But also, but it was the fact that it, I think it was, uh, if, if I'm going to do my own kind of speculation as to the reasoning underlying the FTC's decision, uh, in part that has to do with the fact that it was, they were using, um, you know, private photos. So things that people f- see as very personal. These are photos of my friend, of myself, my friends, my family, and then using that to build a 
highly controversial technology, facial recognition, which was then also being sold to highly controversial uses, law enforcement and U.S. military. That's a test case right there. That's so clear cut. It's cut and dry, um, you know. And again, we see this with the way that uh, uh, Weight Watchers was targeted for its use of, of, of children's online security. I mean, nothing is going to get us, you know, people up in arms over, yeah. you know, protect the children, right. protect the children. When we talked about that, we talked about that um, in our book club series, right? Uh, with uh, Chun's book, right? How powerful narratives of protecting children are, right? And how they were, how they short circuited a lot of people's minds. And what sort of policies can happen? And it, but I, and I think that, you know, in that instance, it was bad. It, it, it created, you know, false conceptions about uh, the dangers of pornography and the dangers of the internet and how, what types of speech should be allowed. But here, I think it's a good opportunity to be quite frank to use, I mean, it is a very real threat harvesting child, uh, children's data. But also, like, like you said, find exemplar test cases where that's going on and use that. Maybe not. Maybe I shouldn't say use it as a Trojan horse, but use it as a Trojan horse <laughs> to, get the, to, get, to get the larger band going on. That's just good legal strategizing. This is how yeah. that shit happens. I mean, there are like, you know, this is how Supreme Court cases get made too, is is test cases like this. You know, there are entire law firms that specialize in trying to find the um, the ideal test case to get some judgment through to create precedent like this. Um, and, it, and I feel like that's exactly what's going on with the FTC. And in response last year to um, FTC making Ever Album delete its um, uh, algorithms and models for facial recognition, um, Ashkan S- uh, Sultani, who was a, uh, a top technology advisor in the Obama administration, and I believe was a technology advisor at FTC during Obama's administration, he tweeted out in response to um, the Ever Album decision, Quote, imagine requiring a firm like Facebook or Google to delete models and algorithms that relied on deceptively collected information. That could require deleting the core machine learning models underlying Facebook newsfeed or Google search. And in fact, in fact, uh, in 2019, Google was fined $170 million for deceptive data collection in the past uh, after illegally collecting information on children without parental consent. So Google's already done this and they got slapped with the big with a fine. $170 million, that's big. It ain't Google big though. It's a cost mm-hmm. of doing business. They were forced to delete the data uh, on children, but not forced to delete um, the algorithm or the insights derived from the data that was collected Mm. illegally, unlike with Ever Album, unlike with Weight Watchers. So here we go. You know, you can't really do that test case against Google. It's going after, uh, it's going after the white well too early. You know, you got to sharpen your spear on some, on some, uh, some smaller fish, but, but you set in precedent for Mm -hmm. doing this exact kind of stuff. Oops. There goes Google search algorithm. Oops. Oops, there goes Facebook news feed. <laughs> oh, God, inshallah, let's fucking go. Do you, either one of you guys use Duolingo or have used Duolingo? Yep. Mm-hmm. 
Like, have you ever noticed how hyper, hyper, like specific some of the things they say are like, damn, are you like eavesdropping on me? <laughs> are you like spying on me? Like, what do you know so much about my personal life or why are you like, why are you, you know, doing this shit to me? Like, you know, like if you're going through depression and then the fucking translation comes out to something like only depressed people put butter in their coffee or some weird shit like that. <laughs> maybe, maybe Duolingo will be the next company that, that gets the act. Maybe there's some surveillance advertising going there. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't doubt it at all, man. They know too much. A lot of places, what they do, a lot of what places, what they do is like, you know, most apps, you give them permission. I mean, it's not you explicitly give them permission, but they have the capacity to, like, because of how much information you just leave out there, glean that sort of data or profiles of, that are already compiled of you elsewhere. Plus, your phone is like their little playpen. I mean, they're just, they're watching the keystrokes. They've got the heat maps of the touchscreens. They've got what else you've been going on that while that app is open and running. It's in, it is insane. I, for one time, me, myself, I was like, bro, Facebook's listening to me <laughs> the way these yeah. ads are. Um, but I think also it's like, that's just literally how much about you is online. And, and how much data has been harvested, which is insane. It, it, it does almost make me want to embrace like uh, primitivism. Listen. Just throw all my fucking shit in the water and like go live in the woods. Like I'm done. <laughs> Look, I read Eshmael. I feel that. I feel that. You know? yeah. That book That book had me thinking after the end, after reading Ishmael, I thought for a few, I was like, hmm, maybe. Uh, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, right? maybe, I, maybe I should just live in the woods. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Uh, maybe. This is a bad idea. Speaking of, there's a new, uh, I haven't seen it yet, but there's a new biopic uh, ca- called Ted K about Ted Kaczynski. I don't know how, I don't know how good it is. I don't know how they frame it. I watched it, but I was super baked. <laughs> <laughs> and when I watched it, yeah, Ted. Yeah, Ted. <laughs> Fuck those people, Ted. They got what they got coming to them, Ted. You write them letters, Ted. I was cheering them on. Plus, the soundtrack is really good. Yeah, the trailers look looked uh, pretty interesting yeah, yeah i don't know i, I have to i have to give it a watch and see how they frame the the story This is low key, like, you know, one of my continual conspiracies is that like, man, maybe these things are actually listening to us, but, but they're not right. Like that's, if you talk to, you know, talk to people who cover ad tech, talk to, to, uh, reporters and researchers, uh, who study ad tech and that, you know, they always say this is a big myth that, you know, and they're, they're quick to bust it. You know, they're, they're not actually listening to you, but you're, you're, exactly right that is that they have so much data they don't need to listen to you they fun they they functionally are listening to your conversations uh without needing to because they they're they collect so much data um through other sources and are able to bring it all together because yeah i mean uh, we we have all been subjected to some really creepy uh targeted uh two you know ads on like instagram or whatever where it's just like man i just talked about that like literally just talked about that with my girlfriend or something and 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 
why am I now getting an ad for this? Or, or there's been cases where like I've told my girlfriend about something and then she gets an ad for it mm. on her Instagram. And just, yeah. What? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's, go- what's going on here? <laughs> It's like low key. Are you are you listening to me? I, I, cue cue the Rockwell drop, Jeremy. I feel like somebody watching me. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I feel like I'm gonna have an F, my FBI agent come and like show up after just like talking about even seeing the Ted Kaczynski movie. Well, <laughs> like, you know, the fact the other day I even like Googled and I will admit this on the uh, podcast, but I Googled uh, Ted Kaczynski font <laughs> like for a font because there is a font out there. There are people selling a font of his handwriting. Literally. Oh. Okay. Right. That's funny. That's a good way to get on a list. I'm on a list now, buddy. I, fucking, <laughs> I mean, the VPN I use is on a list, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> It does remind me when I when I made my 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 um Ukraine Ukraine NFTs tweet that got a bunch of people big mad at me. You know the the funniest response I got was just somebody sent me that that meme that it's that TikTok uh, image that's like trade offer you receive or whatever. It was just a like a picture of Ted uh, Kaczynski's head on the guy's uh, body and it said trade offer you receive mail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that one. That was a very that funny. Was a, that was a yeah, that was a good Unabomber one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you respond I, back to him, Jathan? I did not, but I took, but I stole the <laughs> meme and put it in my yeah. photo roll. <laughs> Thanks for the mail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So, so big waves happened in the FTC. A couple precedents already, you know, with um, them ordering not just the deletion of ill gotten data, but the destruction of, uh, of, of uh, algorithms and models generated and derived from ill-gotten data big waves come in again ftc lena khan uh continues to just you know excite me uh in, in a lot of ways so but let's move on from that to you know speaking of of, of bad algorithms our old enemies at Uber are up to their tricks again. They they got they got something new going on here. This time, a new feature they're calling upfront fares. The markup had a really good report about this, which the markup has really good reports about a lot of stuff. Love the markup. Um, we'll have links to all this in the episode notes, of course, but just quote from there uh, real quick. So Uber has quietly changed the way it pays drivers in several major cities across the U.S. Using a new feature it's calling upfront fares. Instead of paying drivers for trips based on just time and distance, it's now using an algorithm based on several factors, as Uber puts it, to calculate the fare. What all of those factors are is unclear. Uber has long used an upfront pricing algorithm to determine how much passengers pay, which is one of the reasons riders sometimes see vast price fluctuations. But the company says the new feature provides drivers with more transparency. They see more details of a prospective ride before accepting it, such as fare and pick, uh, such as the fare and pickup and drop-off locations, which is something drivers say they've been asking for. But so while they're they're claiming this is about transparency. In actual fact, in practice, 
this upfront fare seems to be uh, drastically dropping the amount that drivers are getting paid uh, all through these black box means. You know, it's no longer just a, a, a straight like taxi calculation of um, how long is the trip and how far is the trip. And that's the payment that you're going to get. But instead, they're incorporating all kinds of unknown factors, which, you know, all, always suspicious when a company says, no, 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 we're doing, uh, we're doing this to improve transparency by incorporating a, a new cutting edge algorithm based on a bunch of things we're not going to tell you about. But, but, but trust us, it's good for you. What if we just had a black box? I mean, like, yeah, it's never, there's never been any good that's come out of a black box algorithm. But of course, I mean, there's, I mean, there, or to backtrack, there's never been any good for the workers, right? Uber has long experimented with its pricing algorithm and functions and features for years, right? I mean, Hubert Haran has done a really good job of uh, tracking, for example, how most of the tinkering has been to reduce the major cost for them, which is labor. And that most of the increases to revenue, most of the increases to profitability margins through adjusted functions, all of this usually comes from tinkering with the pay rules and the ways in which drivers are paid, usually making it fluctuate, but also reducing or pulling out the floor from underneath them, right? And so, yeah, you know, on the one hand, they're getting maybe a little bit more information on about the aesthetic of the trip or the, or the technical route. That's not really, you know, what drivers actually want is more stable and secure and reliable pay at higher rates, not a black box that consistently gives low pay on top of the horrible working conditions that they're all forced to, you know, to endure. But I mean, you know, they don't really care about this, right? Every time Uber has rolled out one of these these systems, it's always been bad. And they argue that it's for the sake of the drivers. I mean, when they did the quota system about two years ago in New York City, they said that this was to help ensure that all drivers got a chance to drive. And in reality, it was just to kick out drivers who weren't driving so many trips that they would earn Uber a certain amount of money or, you know, a return for having them, you know, there as a labor cost. Taking out the drivers who aren't doing a certain amount of trips every day means you can squeeze more productivity out of every driver, which is especially important if, you know, you're anticipating there might be some sort of labor shortage, right? Or if you're anticipating that there might be some issues and you may not be able to provide as many rides as you might want to, right? Just weed out the people who are going to not provide as many rides as you want as, as, as one, you know, possible avenue or explanation for that. You know, this, I think, uh, it shouldn't really be a surprise. I mean, as everyone is saying, and as they say in the article, right? It, it, you know, Uber likes to tell it as if it's about quote more control and choice, right? Balancing of payments. Right? He says the drivers will you know make less money for longer trips, but they'll earn more on shorter trips. But that's not whatever happens, right? Uh, there's one driver that um, Darker talks to who says before you could guesstimate back of the envelope calculate. And see that, you know, the trip is this far and this long and figure out how much you'll make, said Sam Vance, who's a full-time UberX and Lyft driver in Columbus, Ohio, for more than four years. Now, it's not based on anything. There's no rhyme or reason, right? It, you know, it's, it's, it's just key. I think it's always important to remember that most of the times, you know, whenever a company, especially a company as famously unprofitable as Uber, 
right? Is, you know, um, trying to reduce details and in in transparency about how its payment system actually works. It's because it needs to keep up the game, right? Uber's profitability, accounting, financial records are already incredibly opaque, right? If you make the payment system even more opaque, that helps contribute to the opacity of your financing reports, where they can still skirt the legal boundaries of what's allowed and what's not. I can lie and say that maybe I generated this much revenue and not disclose that you know 30% of it, 40% of it was from reducing the pay of all my drivers. I can bullshit and say it was from optimizing um, routes in key metropolitan areas and optimizing markets and improving matching features and reducing external uh, you know, redundancies and externalities, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm, I mean, this is all part of yeah, th- this this is Uber's like death throes. I mean, I think this is how we have to understand it, right? They are pulling out all the stops uh, in in terms of trying desperately to turn a profit, uh, you know, trying to stay afloat, and they're taking it out on the drivers, which they always have done. They just found another way to take it out on the drivers and hide what they're actually doing it, what they're actually doing while dressing it all up in terms of, you know, transparency or making it, you know, Actually, you know, we're addressing the driver's concerns. Look at us. You know, we hear you. We listen. We respond. Um, you know, you wanted to know, uh, you know, pick up and drop off locations before accepting a fare. Okay, we'll give you that. But, you know, in, in actual fact, what it looks like is this. So uh, to quote again from the markup, this is just really illustrative uh, of how uh, the um, Uber's pricing uh, mechanics actually work in practice. So um, the quote, Uber has long said the average amount it takes from fares is about 25%. So this is in turn, this is in like booking fees and service fees that Uber takes from uh, each and each fare. This is the cut they get from making the market for providing the app. You know, to go back to the markup quote, but Vance shared screenshots with the markup of two recent trips he did for Uber that show the company took far more. One shows a customer paid $30 for a 20.9 mile trip. Vance earned $14. Uber got $13 and the rest went to sales tax. Uh, another trip, which was 8.8 miles and included an airport drop, the customer paid $22. Vance got $6. Uber took $9. And the remainder went to airport fees and sales taxes. What that means is that Uber got their cut, and made, but then made the driver pay for airport fees and sales taxes out of their cut. This is how Uber operates, is it makes any cost it can offload to the driver, it will do so. And we've known this forever, you know, cost of, the cost of insurance, the cost of, of fuel, the cost of maintenance, of wear and tear, any cost of actually doing the job that Uber can offload, it will do so. And here we see through this, you know, new opaque uh, upfront charges algorithm, they're offloading more and more cost onto the drivers while also ensuring that they maintain their cut, that their cut re- uh, remains secure and stable and consistent. And from examples that drivers shared with the markup, I'm sure you've seen similar stuff, Ed, in your reporting. Uh, the, the cut that Uber is taking 
is not that 25% they claim it is. It oftentimes is way higher, you know, upwards of 50% uh, or more of the uh, of of the cost of the uh, that customers are paying are going directly to Uber, and here we see through upfront charges this new feature, another way of smuggling that of of preventing drivers from being able to do that guesstimate, from doing that back of the envelope calculation to see just how much they're getting screwed over. Instead, Uber can be like, oh, no, your back of the envelope calculation, that's too simple. It's not taking into account all the different various factors and, and variables and whatnot that our very sophisticated machine learning model is taking into account when doing real-time pricing for individual uh, you know, pickups and, and drop-offs. You're ju- you just don't have all the information. Oh, we're not going to share that information with you, um, but all, you know, all we'll say, you, you just don't have all the information i don't know if this is if this is happening on uber eats i haven't noticed any like change along those lines but they definitely will make sure if they're going to dip their beak they're going to dip it from the middle they're not going to just take a little bit and you might get half you might get less than half it just depends what falls off the plate what i've noticed though is there's always like a tendency with Uber to, if people complain enough about something, they change it, but they never change it to reflect positively on the people that have to use it as employment. There's always some type of smoke screen that comes with that. And I don't know if you've experienced, if you've heard anything about this in your reporting, but there's, you know, a huge proliferation on like the Uber Eats app of people tip baiting because to the point now where like, when you get your when you get your notification into what Jason's point was saying about doing envelope math, they give you like ten seconds to decide if you're going to take this fare or not. So you don't really have enough time to sit there and try to do you know the possibilities of well, if I hit accept on this and I don't look at it and I look at it and I don't like the terms of it and I cancel it, then it affects my rating. And if I fall under a certain percent, then I can't do the fucking job. It's just that vi- fucking vicious fucking cycle. The point what I'm getting at is. There was enough complaints about people saying, well, I'm getting tip baited. So they started doing tips up front and people are starting getting the wise of the fact that if like you tip like 10 bucks on a delivery that you would normally make like $3 on, which is fucking depressing when you think about it, it has a more, more chance of someone picking up and delivering it. And then they get their item delivered. And then when the payout happens an hour later, you find out all you got was three bucks if they fucking tip baited you and you can call and cry to fucking Uber support all day long about this. They don't fucking care because in the end they got their cut. The customer got what they wanted. Fuck with the drivers. Fuck anything to do with the drivers. They're just a means. Yeah. I mean, these companies don't care. And I think one also dangerous thing that is affirmed, that affirms the fact that these companies don't care is, I mean, when you put something behind a black box algorithm, as the markup talks about, if that's what's going to happen, one thing that can be done is that, you know, um, these things eventually learn uh, about driver behavior in aggregate and can figure out the lowest wage to offer that a driver will accept. And like you said, you can't do envelope math uh, quick enough. You're given a limited time. It'll hurt you and your ability to make a living off that or struggle to make a living even further if you do anything other than accept, right? And oftentimes that means, okay, we don't really have a way to audit or verify if what you're being offered is the actual rate or the lowest possible rate that you'll accept, right? Or an actual modified 
rate that does include some comprehensive set of factors as they insist it does. You know, this is a pretty, ins- I think it will end up being an insidious, deve- ins- insidi- insidious development, right? I mean, we saw this as they talked about with Instacart, with DoorDash, with Shipt. Um, I mean, every single gig platform that introduces a payment system that isn't clear and uh, and, and, and transparent um, ends up developing one that pays the driver and the worker or the courier as little money as possible, offloads as many costs as possible, hoards as much of the take as possible, and is almost impossible to audit. Um, meanwhile, they get away with and are unaccountable to the public, the customers, the riders, the users, um, public authorities, right? They're unaccountable to anything because they can just point at it and say, well, one, this is the algorithm doing what it can best. And two, this is proprietary trade secret, blah, blah, blah. I can't look at it. It's a pretty frustrating situation and worrying, worrisome. I do hope and am hopeful you know, there may be ways to block it, but I'm not even really sure how, because I think like so many gig companies have already successfully done this um, without much resistance. Yeah, I want to underline that point as well, that, you know, one of the potential consequences of black boxing um, the fare calculation like this is, and and here, you know, the markup spoke to Amos Toe, um, who's a senior researcher for Human Rights Watch, who studies uh, the effects of AI and algorithms on gig work. And uh, Amos Toe, meant, you know, said that, you know, in their, in, in their research, this is one of the uh, very clear potential consequences is, as you put it, uh, you know, you know, the Uber can then learn what is the lowest rate a driver will take for a ride. Now, Toast said, quote, we don't have any evidence that Uber is doing this, but the real problem is the secrecy because it makes it impossible to verify. So, you know, that that's the thing right there is it leaves us in a position of speculation, not being able to verify or validate what's actually happening, but saying, you know, well, you know, this, they could do this or they could do that. And, and this is very insidious as well. It's a very effective ta- uh, uh, tactic for undermining criticism is providing so little actually verifiable information that what you have to do is you have to piece stuff together you have to, and then you have to speculate based on what you've, what evidence, what patchwork evidence you've been able to piece together um, empirically, based on the uh, the the business model and the precedent of the company in question. How have they be? How have they behaved? Um, what are the incentives and imperatives underlying their business model? Uh, you know, so so it puts you in a position of having. Uh, an empirical patchwork that you then have to, um, you know, speculatively theorize about here's what could happen or here's what might happen um, based on that. And it makes Uber be able to say, well, we're not doing that. You have no evidence that we're doing that. How dare you, uh, you know, uh, paint us with that brush? How dare you accuse us of doing something you have no evidence of? But the fact of the matter is they could be doing it or they could not be doing it. We don't know. Because they've put us in a position of not knowing. But what we can say is that based on everything we do know, it's safer to assume that is what they are doing than to assume that, than to give them the benefit of the doubt. It's safer to assume that they are trying to figure out ways of making, of ensuring that drivers 
are given the lowest fare possible. You know, that's the whole, that's the whole thing behind personalized, um, you know, uh, dynamic pricing is, you know, this was, this was what the, the purpose behind surge pricing was, is figure out what the most consumers will pay and then charge them that. And similarly, we see something very similar, ha uh, very, you know, we see something else happening here that looks very similar, but on the supply side, not the demand side of figure out what the lowest fare drivers will accept and then charge them that. And we, I mean, we do have other evidence that this, that they seem to at least be applying this logic of hyper competitive marketization to um, their calculations of fares with another feature that rolled out at the same time as upfront charges called trip radar. So the way trip radar works is that as the markup puts it, quote, Uber shows a trip to several drivers at once and whoever accepts the ride first gets it. Uh, and this is what Jeremy was saying where, you know, you're, you're given you know, you don't have to accept everything that Uber is saying. Here's a job for you. You know, here's a fare for you. Or here's something, you know, Uber eats. Here's a, a delivery for you. You don't have to accept it, but they're not giving you nearly enough time. Even though they, they're claiming transparency, they're not giving you enough time to actually look at it as uh, you know, as the markup puts it, along with upfront fares, Uber is, uh, or rather, so they, they then spoke to the driver, uh, Vance, the Uber X driver, Vance, who said, you know, uh, he is, he usually only has a second or two to see the fare and click. So he doesn't have time to see all the upfront details right away. Remember all the things Uber said, no, this is actually, uh, increasing transparency because we're giving you all these upfront details before you accept the fare. But as Vance goes on to say, quote, it's kind of a moot point because it comes up so fast in the screen and there are four or five other drivers tapping on it. It's like hungry, hungry hippos and everyone is tapping. So what they've done is they've created an even more hyper competitive marketplace with drivers competing against other drivers for that fare rather than a fare going to you know, the closest drive, the closest available driver saying, Hey, you want to take this? Instead, it's going to uh, a bunch of drivers at the same time. And the, you know, whoever clicks on it first gets it. So you're not given the time to actually act on that. And what that is also doing is it's once again, giving Uber a lot of data about how, you know, what fares will people accept? How quickly will they accept it? Uh, what if we knock the price down a little bit lower, a little bit lower? a little bit lower, and then they can compare that to acceptance rates and, and quite easily start adjusting prices dynamically. It's like the inverse of surge pricing. Rather than the price of consumers going down, uh, the, the fare for drivers, or rather than the price of consumers going up in surge pricing, this inverse version, the fare for drivers goes down. So here you see two... Uh, equal and opposite reactions happening at once, both of which benefit Uber. Fair prices go up uh, for consumers uh, and payment goes down for drivers while Uber is sitting in the middle enjoying uh, burning the candle from both ends, having their, having their cake and eating it too. Yeah, you know, and I think it also helps to think about why is Uber doing some of these changes? You know, for example, why is it trying to re-incentivize longer trips with platform with ride hails you know well part of it is because i think 
you know, and of course we'd have to look more and it's hard to get data on this because um, these companies don't offer it up themselves. So maybe we could look at it, you know, data in Chicago or get in other cities where you're required to report um, information if you're a TLC uh, to the city. You know, I think there is a real effort to try to figure out other ways to increase uh, use of the platform and to incentivize drivers. And you like, yeah, you know, earning less on trips that are longer, I think maybe there might be a rationalization like, okay, but what if there's more demand for longer trips than for shorter trips? Increasing the price for shorter trips and de- um, incentivizing longer trips could be, you know, one thing that might work for them. Um, I think also it is interesting to see in the article the refusal to kind of like discuss this from the, um, from the, uh, what do you call it? The, um, the Uber uh, PR, the Uber flack. The rideshare guy. Oh, no, not him. Although, you know, there are other things to talk about uh, there. But uh, I mean, the um, I mean, the the literal Uber flack, the uh, Harry Hartfield, um, Hmm. you know, this guy avoids most of the questions. And I I like that the markup specifies that he avoids answering these questions, Uh, avoids answering most of the questions uh, that are specifics about why drivers are seeing lower fares, confusing fare drops, overall decreasing rides, why they're being paid less over longer distances. I mean, all these sorts of things he avoids uh, with nimbleness, right? Because um, the point here is you have to keep on the narrative. You have to keep dancing to the tune, which is that this is about flexibility. This is about your choice. But as like, you know, Vina Dubal and Sanjukta Paul have talked about, right, in that uh, on labor piece that they co-authored, flexibility is often like a word meant to say flexibility for the company to impose whatever uh, conditions and and rules that it wants. It doesn't. But what does flexibility usually result in? Right, more variable pay uh, schedules. Right, unreliable payment systems that do not consistently give you high wages or, sur- or livable wages, and and conditions in which you're constantly being incentivized to do this or that thing because you're being experimented on, so that la- uh, the company can figure out the ideal sort of you know balancing balancing point for them to extract as much productivity from you since still keep you on the platform, keep the burn rate at something that makes more makes sense for them, hold off the labor shortage and earn enough revenue to keep investors interested. Right. And it's hard to do. That's a balancing act. One consequence of it is that drivers are always fucked. They're always left out to dry. They're always experimented on. I mean, it really just, I encourage you if you've, if you read this article, Spend an evening trying to see how many times Uber has rolled out experiments changing the way that drivers are paid. It is almost every few months in dozens of cities. Every year, the entire company has existed. They change rates consistently. They reduce rates consistently. They've gone from dynamic pricing to st- to upfront pricing to again now dynamic pricing, right? Um, or you know, with some with some upfront mixes, right? They have changed rates per mile. They have changed rates per time. They have changed rates all the fucking time because it's a balancing act. It's not really interest for, it's not flexibility for the drivers and their labor. It's flexibility for them to meet the demands of capital.
you know, imagine going to the doctor and you've got a fucking arrow through your leg and you're telling doctor, doctor, I got a fucking arrow on my leg. Do something about it. It's like, oh, I'm going to, I see there's something wrong with your arm. I'm going to mess with that for a little bit. No, I've got a fucking arrow on my leg. Well, you, you know, you got something growing on your head. Let me take a look at that. I've got a motherfucking arrow in my motherfucking leg. Do something about it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, man, you should have come in yesterday because, like, the price for treating an arrow through the leg was, like, really down. But, you know, due to some, uh, uh, ver- you know, variables and factors in our black box pricing algorithm, uh, the-, the price for treating an arrow through the leg today has jumped about 400%. Sorry, man. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I can't help uh, you the arrow, the arrow removal doctor was here yesterday, and that was the only day he could be here. Sorry, you missed out. <laughs> it's the doctor in the corner changing, like erasing the prices for arrows as he as he sees you walk through the door. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's it's such a plainly exploitative system, and it is, uh, you know, th- that PR guy's earning his salary. He's, they're all earning their salary, feeding bullshit narratives about what this is, as if it's anything other, as if it has ever been anything other than figuring out the maximum, what is the precise point where the line that says the amount to which you can fuck over the driver and the line that uh, goes and says the amount you can get from the driver intersect, you know, what is the precise point where you reach equilibrium on that graph? How can we get there? Exactly. It, it is. It's, it's, that is exactly it. It's, it's about finding that equilibrium point. But Ed, Ed this, is, this is what's called efficient markets. Yeah, fuck efficient Fish. markets. <laughs> <laughs> we got to find that, that efficient market equilibrium. And that's, right, you know, that's, yeah. what Uber is, that's what Uber is doing through their constant A-B testing, their constant mm-hmm. algorithmic experimenting on uh, drivers and consumers uh, with you know, their, their constant twiddling with the, the price dial up and down. Uh, you know, they're just trying to, they're just trying to, to dial in to that efficient equilibrium point for the markets. But th- yeah, Uber, this the is company what- that's never made a profit if it is, is trying to <laughs> is, is trying to hone in on efficient markets. <laughs> I mean, th- this is this is that this is the Hayekian dream here, though, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you know, this this is the the dream of the of the market as the greatest information processor um, humans have ever created. You know, That's this right, is baby. the dream of of being able to change prices so rapidly. But Uber is, you know, Uber is the poster child for this shit. And they do, they do it in the most like just blatant ways with the most blunt uh, uh, and obvious consequences. But they're not the only ones doing this. There are a lot of other sectors, a lot of other industries that would love to be doing this kind of constant price adjustment because I now see everything through the lens of insurance because I've, I've been, I've been uh, insurance pilled by my yeah. project. <laughs> um, this is something that I'm seeing constantly uh, with insure tech startups uh, marketing their, their, their like um, pricing and underwriting out, you know, machine learning models to, uh, you know, big uh, insurance uh, uh, incumbents, you know, legacy companies is that, you know, insurers would, in the past, 
you know, only feasibly be able to adjust premiums, like maybe like on a quarterly basis. So here we are like, you know, once every three months at most, an insurer could, uh, you know, based on some the latest risk assessment and some actuarial adjustments, um, uh, you know, uh, change the, the prices of premiums um, at most once every three months. Oftentimes it, it happened uh, in even longer timescales than that, you know, once a year maybe where they're having to incorporate, you know, new information about the world into their pricing models. A lot of insure tech startups I'm seeing that are based on, on you know, providing new, you know, machine learning models, new um, pricing algorithms that incorporate, you know, alternative sources of data, as it's called, you know, all of this kind of stuff. They're, they're marketing their ability to be like, now you can uh, create price and roll out new products uh, on a weekly basis if you wanted to. That, that's like, that's, that's the Uber model for insurance. You know, that's what they're trying to do is they're trying to make it a really dynamic, uh, really, uh, react, both reactive and predictive, uh, marketplace for, uh, insurance coverage and marketplace for prices. This is, so we see this logic that Uber is doing here being transposed to a lot of other industries well outside of the gig economy. Um, and a lot of sectors that not that long, I mean, still to today are largely, uh, only able to move, you know, quite slowly in terms of rolling out new products, in terms of adjusting prices for products, uh, that they have. And instead, you know, the dream is for everyone to be like Uber, right? To be able to do this kind of, uh, constant experimenting, this constant search for the greatest, uh, uh, equilibrium, you know, equilibrium in favor of the company's profits, of course, and the greatest flexibility, uh, in terms of the ability to roll out new products, adjust prices, uh, and, and, and so on. Like, this is the dream. It goes back to something we've say again and again and again that like, you know, while we may talk about this in regards to Uber or other gig economy companies, it's only because this is the vanguard, right? Like this is the, uh, uh, th this is a, that test case we talked about at the top of the show. Um, but it's a test case for capital. Uh, it's not a test case for uh, enforcement like what we see with the FTC. It's a test case for capital's ability in other sectors and other industries to do very similar things, to levy these kinds of, uh, you know, platform-based business models, these kinds of, you know, uh, data-driven machine learning-based uh, technologies and services and capabilities onto Everything and everybody at all times. That's the goal here. Hell yes. Hell yes. Can I get an amen? <laughs> oh, I think man. we just need it's I mean, it's like, you know, Trash Futures racism computer, except this will I mean, this will be just as racist. The I can the insurance company's racism computer will be even more racist because um It'll be uh, justified. They'll have actuarial tables. They'll have behavioral modifications. They'll have smart homes. They'll have uh, input surveillance devices, input surveillance and surveillance advertising. They'll know every part of your life. And they'll use that to, you know, justify the racism. This is, this really is the Hayekian dream. 
Yes. Okay. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Um, this, that you actually just reminded me at is something that I, I, you know, in, in my reading on insurance, uh, uh, reading about, I came across this case study that, you know, I come across these things now that constantly make my blood boil in new ways, but yes, share it with the class. This is from a, 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 a law paper I was reading about the, um, the practices of insurance around like moral hazard. Um, so just to quote a paragraph here. In the late 1980s, some large U.S. insurers were refusing to sell life, health, and disability insurance to battered women on the grounds that they posed an unacceptably high risk. In response to this news, states began enacting legislation prohibiting insurers from discriminating against victims of domestic violence, and bills to do the same on a national level were introduced into the U.S. Congress. In an effort to defeat the legislation, the insurer's defense was that excluding battered women from the insurance pool was quote-unquote actuarially fair. According to the insurers, the history of abuse meant that these women were much more likely to make life, health, or disability insurance claims in the future than other women. Otherwise, similarly situated women who were not domestic abuse victims. This higher risk meant that it was, again, actuarially fair to exclude them from the insurance pool, just as insurers exclude other unacceptably higher risk. That shit didn't just end in the 1980s. They just got a little bit smarter about it. They, the insurance industry still uses this concept of actuarial fairness to justify discrimination based on quote unquote scientifically sound risk management or risk yeah, that's assessment. Right. You know, you know, the best and most proven scientific method of measuring risk is taking someone's head and feeling the bumps along their skull. That is, that is always, that is always every, every landholder's favorite uh, tool, um, especially if they're looking to, you know, for insurance of their property. And yeah. the bumps on your skull are evidence of, yeah. of, of your riskiness. Listen, I'm sorry, Mr. Anguasso, we can't give you that loan when we were rubbing your temple when you came in here. Uh, we noticed there was a bump near the occipital lobe, which... Uh, today, people think is associated with vision, but if you actually go back to this text we um, recovered from Germany in 1859, it says very clearly that that is the area that deals with aggression. So I feel that we won't be able to collect on the loan. Um, no. So I'm also, no, I'm also I'm looking here. Um, Angueso, that's an interesting surname. Is that African <laughs> in origin? <laughs> interesting. Like they're just, just typing just, into the computer, yeah, into just the racism that computer. Down into my notebook. <laughs> yeah. Is that African? Mm. Just checking. No, no, don't worry about it. Mr. Sadowski, I see you have a, uh, a uh, vaguely Eastern European last name. How long has your family been in the country? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, po the Poles are... Uh, uh, <laughs> Talk about European discrimination against the Polish. <laughs> yes. Another UK hallmark. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but that, that is exactly it here, though, is that the only thing that they've that the insurance companies or that these other companies uh, have gotten better at is the ways of hiding and spinning these kinds of awful practices. They haven't, they haven't eliminated it. They haven't gotten rid of it. They've just found black boxes to, to filter it through. They found data 
to, to justify it with, they have found uh, machine learning models and algorithms to uh, pass the blame onto. That's what they've done, but they've not changed the actual outcomes here Mm-mm. at all. They've just changed the tools that lead to those outcomes. Um, so now they no longer have to say, uh, actually, we would like to explicitly discriminate against domestic abuse victims. Uh, instead, they say, ah, well, you know, our algorithm just came up with the pricing. Uh, I, you know, that, it, that, I don't hey, know. <laughs> that's science. That's science, baby. <laughs> yeah. It's the, it's, it's race. It's, uh, sorry, not race science. It's insurance science. Yeah, it's, it's right. That's right. So, <laughs> so again, all these things are connected in, in a lot of ways. All these things are connected. And it just one thing happening in one place, uh, is not, it, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, um, from all the other industries and, and, and sectors and markets that are also interested in doing those kinds of things. And again, for insurers, a lot of this, much like with um, gig companies, a lot of this is about uh, trying to raise margins, trying to find, trying to eke out profits wherever they can. Uh, that's that's the ultimate motivation here, and they do it through the, these logics of of market of dynamic real time marketization, and it just looks slightly different in, in some applications versus others, but ultimately the outcomes and the operations are the, are, are the same. I have to... It's the p- apology of the week time. I lied. I lied at the top of the show when I said we'd get into buy now, pay later stuff in this episode. <laughs> 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 yeah, that, that's that. <laughs> now we'll go to Patreon. It'll be a good discussion. So join the Patreon and you get oh, to hear yeah. it. It's going to be really good. So we've I, there was just a lot more there for us to talk about than I thought. A lot of really good stuff, though. Worthwhile. Worth spending the time on it. Um, <laughs> but we have also done a lot of research on buy now, pay later. <laughs> um, so uh, we've got a really, really great informative discussion coming on a sector, on a, on a kind of uh, a, te- a technology, a, a, a product or service, whatever you want to call it, which has really just boomed. It's new. Uh, you know, the, the, one of the original, uh, uh, companies, a firm w- was only founded uh, like five or six years ago. One of the other big ones, Afterpay, which is Australian, was only founded in 2014. I mean, these are really new, yet they have just absolutely exploded in their use. I mean, I'm sure you, our dear listeners, have probably, uh, just statistically used one of these buy now, pay later companies where, you know, point of service or during the checkout flow, as it's called, you know, when you're buying something online and you have the option, why pay for the whole thing now when you could pay for it broken up into four easy installments over the next, you know, uh, bi-weekly installments? Interest-free, convenient, frictionless, right there, embedded in the checkout. Uh, it's so easy to do. We, recent surveys of consumers um, from com- uh, from places like Consumer Reports shows that um, well over a third of consumers uh, have now used at least once, if not repeatedly, one of these buy now, pay later companies to pay for things 
like, you know, big uh, apparel purchases, you know, a pair of uh, jeans or an expensive pair of boots that you want, but also smaller stuff like groceries or a meal. So this is massive. It's very, it's a very important and one of the most lucrative and booming uh, uh, types of fintech happening right now. One thing that has really drawn me to this, and we'll get into it in the episode, is there's an insure tech angle here as well. There always is. Always. Uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, Dutifully Jason founded. Like I feel like you've got the they live glasses, but for insure tech now. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh buy now, pay later is something that I have long said is if something is if there's one thing that's gonna give me an aneurysm, it's the it's the explosion of these like payday lenders with an app. Um yeah. and then coming, you know, and doing the insure tech research, finding uh how that this business model is also influencing one of the new developing innovations in insurance, uh, really just, just uh, added to the blood clot that's forming in my brain right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah. <laughs> lots for us to get into, lots for us to discuss in terms of how they work, what's actually going on with the uh, BNPL, buy now, pay later, and what are the consequences, big and small, um, for for us, for the economy, for uh, the future of, of, of finance, insurance, and real estate, for the fire sector. All of that to come in the Patreon episode where you, later this week, which you can find on patreon.com slash this machine kills, $5 a month will give you access to that episode as well as a large back catalog of other episodes, both standalone, standalone pieces, uh, and continuations, you know, part twos of, uh, episodes that we've done on the free feed. So find us there, uh, deal at any price, but especially only at $5 a month. So until then, uh, we'll see y'all on the premium feed later. Adios.
funeral. <laughs> 